Good morning. Good morning. Wow. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for a new day. Thank you for letting us come apart and be together. We thank you for your word, for your spirit, for your church, for the fellowship of the saints, and for the opportunities you've set before us for placing us in this world and equipping us for living in this world and to represent Jesus Christ in this world. Help us, Lord, to more self-consciously be followers of Jesus, to renounce the world and its thoughts, and to embrace the gospel without reservation, that we might be the kinds of ambassadors for Christ that you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Starting a new series of Sunday School Lessons uh, called Choosing Sides, and the sides we're going to be choosing are between the Lord and all the other options. A line can only be straight in one way. It can be crooked in many ways. And in order to recognize crooked lines, especially subtle crooked lines, it's important to know what the straight line is, what the standard is. And of course, the Word of God is that standard. In 2018, I read a book by Nancy Piercy titled, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And... Um, I've read it a couple of times and going through it again now in the preparation for these lessons. And I, find it, I found it to be very thoughtful, powerful, and full of grace. Dealing with some of the hardest questions that are before us, and yet full of the grace of the gospel. It's a book of philosophy, theology, sociology, and... Um, uh, I plan or that address clearly the frontline issues of our day, that, and I want us, us, and as it does, to challenge Christians to think more deeply about them. Moreover, it equips us to engage our culture with the gospel. Therefore, much of what I'll be bringing to you in these lessons is either directly from this book or indirectly, and in that it, it's, it stimulated my own thoughts which were, again, provoked in that way. And so I'll be making use of other resources as we go, and as I do, I'll provide those references when we get to them. But in the meantime, you should assume that much of the material that I'll be presenting to you is based upon this book. However, I want to begin with the Scriptures and then a few thoughts of my own. I want to read Joshua 24, verses 1 through 28 which I think nicely sets the table for the discussion we hope to have over the next several weeks. Joshua 24. Hear now God's Word. <clears throat> then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river 
led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hands, that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. And then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the, over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jirgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them, and you eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him with sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord. For he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him, And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and, and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. 
And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it, is, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Bible sets before us over and over clear choices between light and darkness, the narrow way versus the broad way, life, death, heaven, hell. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And again, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And so each of us, indeed every man and woman, are presented with some very stark choices between following Jesus and following some other God. Unfortunately, many want to try to straddle the fence, flirting with other gods and imbibing alien philosophies. And that's been an age-old problem for the people of God. That was what we were just reading about here is, yeah, we want to, claim God as our God, but uh, we want Yahweh to be our God, but we want to dabble with these other gods, and we want to blend these things. And that's certainly been the case throughout Christian history with the church, and even in our own day with all of us. They're they're, They're alien gods and alien philosophies all around us all the time trying to get us to follow them. And uh, if we're not clear on who we are and who it is we're following and how we are to think about this world, and to think about ourselves, and to think about God, and to think about sin, and to think about life and sexuality, since those are some of the critical issues before us. If we haven't learned how to think God's thoughts after Him, then we become subject to these alien gods. They don't want to, uh, sometimes Christians don't want to fully commit to the Scriptures as the only rule of faith and life. Not just one among many rules, but the only rule. But they would uh, be highly offended if you even hinted that they might not be Christians. But Jesus was clear when he said uh, to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And again he said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And so I want to challenge you up front to choose sides. Whose side are you on? Are you for him all the way, 100%, no matter what he says, or are you against him? Is he your ultimate authority when it comes to to all the issues of life? Or are there other voices that have your ear and therefore your heart? Genesis is the book of beginnings. The first three chapters of Genesis deal with most of the current major social issues like evolution, ethics, sexuality, marriage, and life. 
This tells us that these are not really new issues at all, but rather they are ancient battles that are at the core of who we are as human beings. So it shows up in the opening pages of the Bible. It is the, These are the issues, and they always have been the issues. They were the issues when Joshua said to the people what he said, what we just read. We are always driven back to our core principles and our basic presuppositions. So on the one side, we have the exclusive claims of the triune God, uh, the God of Scripture, who claims to be the one, only, true, and living God. That's the claim. It's nothing short of that. That's His claim. And now you're going to have a choice. I have a choice. We have a choice to decide whether we're going to believe that claim and therefore bow before Him and follow Him and believe in Him and trust in Him because He is the only true and living God. That is set over against the pantheon of rival gods who seek to determine good and evil for us. Now, we might be our own God, and therefore we want to determine good and evil, but that's what all gods want to do. All gods want to tell us what to do. And it's an inescapable concept. We all have a God. We all have an ultimate authority. And so it's a war over who will define who we are and who will determine what is good or evil, what is right or wrong. The war of the worldviews rages everywhere, all the time. The two statements, uh, two statements from competing worldviews summarize this. Camille Paglia, who is uh, an American feminist and academic and social critic, wrote in her book, Vamps and Tramps, quote, Fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Oliver Donovan, a British Anglican priest and academic, wrote in his book, Begotten or Made, quote, Christians should confess their faith in the natural order as the good creation of God. We must cherish nature we must defer to its imminent laws, and we must plan our activities in cooperation with them. Do you see the contrast of the two? Pretty stark. And that's the world we live in. Nancy Piercy lays it out this way. Human life and sexuality have come to be the watershed moral issues of our age. Have you ever wondered, I do sometimes, why, why are these the issues that are being fought about politically? All the stuff we see right now, if you, if you watch news, uh, um, or if you've sworn off, uh, which might be good for everybody, okay? But if you watch all the, all the battles, all the political battles over who's going to be president, who's going to be impeached, all of that is over these issues. You've got to understand that. It's not just because someone doesn't like somebody else. This is warfare. And it's critical warfare. Back to Nancy Piercy. Human life and sexuality have become the watershed moral issues of our age. Every day, the 24-hour news cycle chronicles the advance of a secular moral revolution in areas such as sexuality, abortion, assisted suicide, 
homosexuality and transgenderism. The new secular orthodoxy is being imposed through virtually all the major social institutions, academia, media, public schools, Hollywood, private corporations, and the law. Current events are merely surface effects like waves on the ocean. The real action happens below the surface in what we call worldviews. We must uncover and expose the worldview that drives this secular ethic. Remember, the word ethic, I'm going to try to define things as we go along, not assume too much. Ethics are the standards of right and wrong. Everybody has those. Everybody has an ethic, whether they've thought about it or not. Everybody has some ultimate authority and a basis for determining what's right and what's wrong. We want to understand what's driving the secular ethic. The current postmodern moral theories devalue human beings and destroy human rights. So let me uh, just pause and give a couple of definitions. Modernism and postmodernism. Modernism is defined as a tendency in theology to accommodate traditional religious teaching to contemporary thought and especially to devalue the supernatural elements. Uh, This really begins uh, very strongly in the late um, 19th century and uh, particularly with Darwin and Freud and Marx and these guys are going to come along and then that's going to impact things like the higher critical movement which begins to question the supernatural aspects of the Bible, miracles, things like that. Everything now needs to be defined in terms of the scientific world. Um, And so... Um, modernism is a philosophical movement that along with cultural trends and changes arose from the enormous transformation in Western society, again, during the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Modernism was essentially based on a utopian vision of human life and society and a belief in progress. Evolution kind of provided that idea that we're all making progress. And in fact, modernism philosophically and politically wanted to speed that up. Evolution was taking too long, and so it became an idea that we could socially engineer things and and advance this progress uh, through education and various other things. And so uh, it assumed that certain ultimate universal principles or truths, such as those formulated by religion or science, could be used to understand and explain reality. That's modernism. But then now we have postmodernism is largely a reaction to the assumed certainty of scientific or objective efforts to explain reality. In essence, basically modernism uh, has failed to produce what it promised, and so now despair has set in, as often happens with philosophies when it doesn't produce what we hoped it would produce. And so now we're left with this, uh, and so... In essence, it, postmodernism stems from a recognition that reality is not simply mirrored in human, under, human understanding of it, but rather is constructed as the mind tries to understand its own uh, peculiar and personal reality. So now we're left with everybody just trying to interpret this existence for ourselves. You, make, you try to make sense of it. I try to make sense of it. You're not right. I'm not right. You're not wrong. I'm not wrong. Everybody has their own view. 
For this reason, postmodernism is highly skeptical of explanations that claim to be valid for all groups, cultures, traditions, or races, and instead focuses on the relative truths of each person. In the postmodern understanding, interpretation, uh, its interpretation is everything. Uh, reality only comes into being through our interpretation of what the world means to us individually. Postmodernism is post because it denies the existence of any ultimate principles and it lacks the optimism of there being a scientific, philosophical, or religious truth which will explain everything for everybody, a characteristic of the so-called modern mind. So, if you need a refresher on those, but we'll be referring to those uh, throughout. So, um, the current, so those who disagree with the self-proclaimed politically correct are now instantly and vigorously accused of intolerance, discrimination, and hate, branded as bigots and misogynists, that is, people who hate women, uh, and target, targeted for campaigns of shame and intimidation. So now we're left with just raw power. Who has the power to force their worldview upon the rest? In its 2013 Windsor decision, the United States Supreme Court ruling struck down uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, uh, a federal law recognizing that marriage is between one man and one woman. The majority opinion of uh, accused DOMA supporters of being motivated by animus, that is, hostility, hatred, uh, and uh, so forth. It claimed that their purpose was, and I quote words here, to disparage, injure, degrade, demean, humiliate, and harm people in same-sex unions, to brand them as, quote, unworthy, to, quote, impose a disadvantage, a stigma, and to, quote, deny them equal dignity. In short, the court didn't just say that people who support one man, one woman marriage are mistaken. It denounced them as positively hostile, hateful, and mean-spirited. Those who disagree with the prevailing secular ethical standards or ethos pled a right to religious liberty. But the chairman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights wrote disdainfully that, quote, the, phrase, the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any other form of intolerance. The next stage will be to deny citizens their Christian liberty. In fact, that has already begun. Those who resist the secular moral revolution have lost jobs, businesses, and teaching positions. We've seen bakers and florists forced out of business and worse for being unwilling to violate their consciences and for following their Christian faith. Others have been kicked out of grad school programs, lost the right to be foster parents, been forced to shut down adoption centers, lost their status as campus organizations, and the list of oppression is likely to grow. The same politically correct orthodoxy is being aggressively promoted around the globe. The State Department 
The United Nations, the European Union, private foundations, and the media, wealthy nations are pushing poorer nations to change their laws on abortion and sexuality as a prerequisite for aid. The sexual revolution is going global. Now, one of the problems, one of the reasons I'm teaching here uh, at church, uh, first of all, this is what church is for. God, we're being equipped to go out into the world as God's people and to represent Him. And so in order to do that, like the sons of Issachar, we need to understand our times and then know what to do. But we have many co-opted churchgoers. So we can't think that churchgoers are immune to these ideas. Many people who identify as religious or Christian are being co-opted by the secular worldview, often without realizing it. Many of our young people in our church are being co-opted. They're co-opted through all the social media that's flowing in from all kinds of directions. And um, so, just give you a few. Pornography. About two-thirds of Christian men watch pornography at least monthly. The same rate as men who do not claim to be Christian. Cohabitation. A Gallup poll found that almost half, 49% of teens with religious backgrounds, support living together before marriage. Divorce. Among adults who identify as Christians but rarely attend church, 60% have been divorced, and of those who attend church regularly, the number is 38%. Homosexuality and transgenderism. These issues are dividing even conservative religious groups in a 2014 Pew Research study, 51% of evangelical millennials said same-sex behavior is morally acceptable. Abortion. A Lifeway survey found that about 70% of women who had an abortion self-identify as Christians. And 43% said they attended a Christian church at least once a month or more at the time they aborted their baby. The problem is that many people treat morality as a list of rules. But in reality, every moral system rests on a worldview and an ultimate authority. Most people have not self-consciously thought about naming what their ultimate authority is, but everyone has an ultimate authority. And in every decision we make, we're not just deciding what we want to do, we are expressing our view of the purpose of human life. To be strategically effective then, we must address what people believe about the nature and significance of life itself. We must engage their worldview. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the Christian and the materialist, by the way, a materialist, that's the philosophy that says nothing exists but matter and its motion. The Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply does not fit the real universe. We want to show that a secular morality does not fit the real universe. So, you may have heard this phrase. I remember hearing it in college uh, as a lot of these ideas began to emerge. Uh, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. 
In the past, most civilizations held that reality consisted of both a natural order and a moral order integrated into an overall unity. So you had morality and we had religious beliefs and those kinds of things. And then we had the physical world, things like the laws of gravity and that kind of thing. Therefore, our knowledge of reality was likewise thought to be a single unified system of truth. These, these were one. Just like you are a spirit and a body, but that makes you who you are. Uh, we talk about them for, for the sake of describing different aspects of who we are, but you can't take one away. And, and still be a person, still be a human being. These are essential. And so in the modern age, many people have come to think that reliable knowledge is possible only in the natural order, the empi- where, where we can empirically and scientifically test something. That's the only reality. So what does that imply for moral truths? Moral truths... You can't put them in a t- test tube and turn them green, right? To see, you know, is it positive or negative? Uh, or studied under a microscope. Many people concluded then that morality does not qualify as objective truth. It consists merely of personal feelings and preferences. The unified concept of truth then has been exploded and split into two separate domains. Theologian Francis Schaeffer illustrated the division using the metaphor of two stories in a building. In the lower story is empirical science, which is held to be objectively true and testable. This is the realm of public truths, things that everyone is expected to accept regardless of their private beliefs. The upper story is the realm of morality. Uh, Sam, if you put up that first image there. Uh, so... The upper story is the realm of morality and theology, which are treated as private, subjective, and relative. This is, again, where we hear people say, well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Um, So the concept of truth has been divided. So, again, the illustration here of the two stories. So we... So in the science realm, we wouldn't say what's true for you might not be true for me because the claim is everything in that story is public, objective, and valid for everyone. What's true there for me is also true for you. The law of gravity. But when we go to the upper story, you have your view and I have my view, and neither one of us can really say who's right because it's subjective. It just has to do with my perspective and my opinion and my feelings. And you you have no claim to, to in any way, judge me. So I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. It's a heck of a deal. You don't judge me, and I won't judge you. You do what you want to do, and let me do what I want to do. Let's Let's make peace. Let's have a truce. You stop... Preaching to me, you stop handing me tracts, you stop trying to persuade me and convince me that you're right and I'm wrong, and I'll leave you alone and you leave me alone and we, we'll just live happily ever after. That's, that's what's happened to truth. Now, second slide. The academic world used different terms that essentially set forth this same dualism. 
They call it the fact-value split, but you can see it's essentially the same thing. Facts are public, objective, and valid for everyone. Values are private, subjective, and relativistic. And so I remember being in, uh, in college and taking education courses, and I don't know, if, I'm, I'm sure there's some form of this. Uh, one thing about educational uh, uh, work in the field of education uh, is it's, it's always changing. Um, uh, there's some new slogan and new ideas, but they, cir they circle back around. But this, the big one was we're into values clarification. Uh, we want to help you clarify your values, help you think through what you believe, not impose values on you, not tell you what's right or what's wrong. And I remember having my, my, one of my college professors, an English teacher that I loved, but she came to class one day, had a book, big book, she got out of the library. She was outraged. She said, I went to the library to look up something, and I opened the page. And she opens the page, the big book, and an entire column had been cut with a razor blade and taken out of the book. And she was just infuriated over that. Why would anyone do that? And I said, somebody clarified their values with a razor blade. Oh, well, we don't like that. All of a sudden, we realize that that's nonsense. That everybody is outraged when they go to the library and somebody's cut a piece out that should have been there. So, um, the fact-value split is just the tip of the iceberg. All modern philosophy has divided into two major streams, one stream being with the scientific revolution, it gave rise to the Enlightenment tradition, uh, composed of philosophers who claimed that they were building their entire philosophy on science. They proposed philosophies that treat the fact realm, the lower story, as the primary reality. And so we had isms like empiricism, rationalism, materialism, and naturalism that came out of this. However, there was a reaction against the Enlightenment called the Romantic Movement, and it was composed of thinkers who sought to keep alive the upper story, the values realm, and they focused on questions like justice and freedom and morals and meaning. Thinkers in this tradition pr proposed isms such as idealism, Marxism, existentialism, and postmodernism. Today, these two traditions are loosely summarized, again, under the headings of modernism and postmodernism, and they remain at loggerheads. Third slide, Sam. So modernists claim that the lower story is the primary or sole reality, that is, facts and science, and postmodernists claim that the upper story is primary, that even facts and science are merely mental constructs. So, so in essence, what they're saying is, yeah, the upper story is, is subjective and a matter of one's own interpretation, but it turns out that that's true of the lower story also. You can't really know anything for, for sure. And you can think about some examples of that. How many times do we hear some big pronouncement from science, some fact that we're all to accept, whether it has to do with nutrition or, or whatever, only to find out in five years that's been thrown out? Yes. Um, and so now we've got a mess everywhere. So we can't know anything, which actually is something the Bible said all along. 
if you've, if you've abandoned the one true and living God, who is the truth, then what are you left with? Chaos. You can't know anything. Why? Because we are utterly finite creatures. You know almost nothing about everything. That is true of every human being. Of all the things there are to know, right? Past, present, future, you know almost nothing. And in order to know any one thing for certain, you've got to know all of it for certain because you could be mistaken, right? You could learn something tomorrow you didn't know yesterday and change everything. So the key to understanding all the controversial issues of our day is that the concept of the human being has likewise been fragmented into upper and lower stories. Secular thought today assumes a body, think of that as the lower story, and a person, upper story, split. So you have a body and you have a person. With the body defined as the fact realm by empirical science, lower story, and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights, upper story, this dualism has created a fractured, fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. This is going to be essential to our understanding of the current emphasis on identity. Your body is only a container for your person. The person can define how to use the container, however they would like, including modifying or discarding unwanted containers. So we're going to see when it comes to abortion, yes, that is a container. That is a body in the womb, but it's not a person yet. So it's okay to get rid of it. It's just a body, just a container. I'll probably refer to this illustration again. You have a car, right? And then you get in the car and you decide what to do with the car. You can drive it fast or slow or crash it or drive it in reverse or just sit in it. It's your car. Do what you want to with it. It's just a car. You want to modify it? Modify it. It's a car. You decide what to do with the car. Well, in this view, you do decide what to do with the body. And so, we live in a moral wasteland where human beings are desperately seeking answers to hard questions about life and sexuality, but there is hope. In this wasteland, we can cultivate a garden. We can discover a reality-based morality that, ex, uh, that expresses a positive, life-affirming view of the human person, one that is more inspiring, more appealing, and more liberating than the secular worldview, which only ends in despair. Now, we watch and see stuff all around us portraying themselves We've got this. We've got it all together. We're truly happy. We're truly fulfilled. That is a lie. And you don't have to dig very deep to discover that. Just wait. Just watch. Questions? We've got a couple of minutes left. Or comments? We're going to be looking at uh, specifically the abortion question homosexuality, transgender issues, uh, but also some of the broader issues of, of marriage, 
and why these issues are so critical for us to choose sides. And so, you know, if someone says, you know, I don't like the church's position on this. You know, this is, this is not a smorgasbord at the church. If you want to follow Jesus, get on board with him and follow him. And if you say, I think Jesus is crazy, I think Jesus was wrong, I think the Bible is wrong, I, don't, I think that's old-fashioned, I found something new and improved, then follow that. Then go for it. Go all the way for it. Because at the end, we're all going to live with the outcome of who our God is. You've got to serve somebody. Who's it going to be? He said, well, I don't understand everything in the Bible. Some of it doesn't make sense. Well, that, that is understandable. <laughs> There's a lot to understand. But our prior and primary commitment is going to determine how we arrive at those answers. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the choice that you've set before us. It's clear. It's uh, unambiguous. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves muddled because of all the clamor and the noise around us and the barkers from the fair who are trying to sell us their goods. Help us, Lord, to think clearly, precisely, and resolutely as we have been called out of this world to be followers of Jesus. We have an eternal kingdom and a Lord who is Lord of lords and King of kings. And may that issue be settled and settled firmly and forever in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.